the sisterhood of the bottomless mimosa. Hello, hello, hello. This is CJ. Welcome back to the sisterhood of the bottomless mimosa. I'm here with my friend, Melissa. Melissa, Meliza, Melizard, Maliho, all of the above. People call you Maliho? Yeah. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> that might be my new one. Um, yeah, we're back for our 32nd episode to spit some knowledge on badass women in history. Yeah, we are. I just took a sip of my wine, and oh my god, it was like a kick in the mouth. <laughs> I wasn't ready for that, but we'll get to that at the wine review. So, Melissa, so if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, then you know that Melissa has had quite the adventure with her living situation. She's been, you've, I was thinking about this, you've been, have you recorded every single episode in your apartment? Uh, yeah, in this apartment I've been living in? Yeah. Yeah, every single one. Because I've, I, I realized today that I've recorded this podcast in three different houses. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And what was that? That was the fucking dog dropping her bone on the floor. <laughs> Tell her to knock it off. We're recording. I, I know. I'm trying. It's raining outside, so she didn't get a lot of exercise today, so she's being an asshole. Stop. Now I have to hide her bone. Anyway, so you have a new chapter in the house catastrophe saga. Yeah, so if anybody needs a recap on some of the things I've been dealing with over the past, I guess, what, one year? Because this has only been since we've been recording. Mm -hmm. So, like, the first thing that happened was my garbage disposal was rotting sweet potato stew, or at least that's what I thought was happening, and then it turned out that actually my refrigerator was rotting some type of strange liquid out of the back of it. And then my apartment was destroyed by a rapid flood. And then I don't even know if I ever used to tell you about my doorknob issue. Did I ever tell you about my doorknob issue? I do not recall a doorknob issue. Like how all of the doorknobs in my apartment never worked? (laughs) No. Oh. Well, I used to have a doorknob issue. I locked myself in the bathroom one time on accident. So it's just a lot of shit, you know? (laughs) And so the most recent of sagas was, so I was at my apartment on Sunday. Today is Wednesday. I slept in my house Sunday night. Everything was all dandy and gravy. I went to work Monday. I slept over at my boyfriend's house Monday night. I went to work Tuesday. I came home Tuesday night. So really, I was only gone like one whole day and a half. And when I got home yesterday... I was like, oh, sweet, I have three hours until my volleyball game. I'm going to do some meal prep and cook and be a responsible, healthy adult. So I head into my kitchen, and I'm like, I noticed, like, a like a fly, like, in my face. And I'm like, oh, that's weird. I'm, like, shuffling around, like, getting, like, my chicken ready, my, like, salt and pepper. Then I go to grab my bag of sweet potatoes, and as I lift them up... Literally 6,000 fruit flies were released from within the sweet potato bag. Gross. And it was a complete infestation. Oh. It wasn't like that Sunday. 
So at some point between Monday and Tuesday, one of my sweet potatoes rotted and it developed an infestation of fruit flies and I was under attack for two hours last night freaking the fuck out i didn't know what to do because there were so many of them and so my first initial reaction was to grab a bottle of hairspray (laughs) and just start bombing the entire kitchen that didn't do anything so then i grabbed like a all-purpose cleaner and just started spraying those motherfuckers with that thinking like the chemicals will kill him that didn't do shit either so then I'm like Googling DIY, what do I do? And everything tells me to put apple cider vinegar mm-hmm. with some dish soap and like fill it up with water and leave it open because the idea is that the, the bugs will fly in, get like attracted by the scent and then get caught in the bubbles and like sucked into the water. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to set up a couple of those traps, go to my volleyball game, come back and see if I caught them all. Came back, only caught like three out of 3,000 fucking fruit flies, so that didn't do shit. So then I was just really fucking angry and like upset and not knowing what I was going to do. So I pretty much just had to close the door to my kitchen and pray to God that they would be gone. I didn't check this morning, um, but when I got home today... I checked and like there was all of them were gone except for maybe like four stragglers and then I was like where the fuck did they all go like I understand they might have died but like where are their dead bodies because I am not seeing them (laughs) (laughs) and I was just like dumbfounded and then I went back into my kitchen before we're about to record and I had forgot that yesterday one of the DIY things said to leave an old spoiled bottle of wine out because they're also interested in the smell of wine. Uh Uh-huh. And I forgot because it was just like a bottle sitting on my counter, which I see every day of the week. So like I forgot that I opened it and left it there. Um... This kind of ties into, I guess, a part one of tonight's wine review. If anybody is curious how to catch fruit flies, I don't know what episode I covered this wine bottle in, but it was that garbage summer rosé that I had to have been drinking like a long fucking time ago. And And it was just open? No, I had it in my refrigerator. Like, I didn't finish the bottle one night we were recording, and it's just been sitting there for months. And so when the internet told me to pull out an old bottle of wine, I saw that garbage rosé, which I didn't like even when I had it on the podcast. So I'm like, oh, perfect. This is some garbage fucking wine. Somebody, these flies will really love this. I set it out, and then right now I looked, and there's like 70 fucking fruit flies in that bottle of wine. (laughs) Drowned to death. God, the things that Fly will do for sponsorship these days, man. That's <laughs> just crazy. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I just so, don't get it. So and it's then, all gone. So, and well, then this other thing that keeps happening to me is that any, every time I sleep over at my boyfriend's house, I end up with bug bites, and he has none. So, like, now I'm just starting to think I'm part of, like, the Lord Almighty Savior's first plague for 2019. Like, you know, like in the Bible, they like threw out a bunch of frogs one day to attack people, and then they gave somebody else like a bunch of diseases. Well, I'm apparently being targeted with the bug attack because I'm being <laughs> eaten alive in my sleep, and I just had an infestation occur over one sweet potato in my tiny ass apartment. You just have sweet, sweet blood. They can't get enough. Oh, I don't uh. know. That's gnarly. Yeah, it's pretty fucking gross. 
<laughs> so hopefully they'll all be gone tomorrow. Yeah, this is giving me like huge reminiscences of New Orleans and all the bug battling that you have to do in that city. Ugh. Like, have I talked on the podcast before about the termite swarms? Yeah, I think you have told me that. Yeah. So just quickly, termites swarm in like late spring every year in New Orleans. I didn't even know termites could fly. And they're so small and squirmy that they can fit through the cracks in your windows and your wooden, like anything. Ugh. And it's like for two weeks every year, we all like turn all of the lights off in our house because they're attracted to the light and we like hunker down and hide from Ew. these fucking plagues. Alice, I send people, I won't send it to you because it'll creep you out, but I've sent people videos of the swarms and they're like, they literally look like egyptian plays like millions i'm talking millions of bugs it's so gnarly you know i'm really not like a fr- i'm not like afraid of bugs you know people are terrified of bugs i'm yes, not i am i just would prefer not being eaten by them or having them living in the tiny little space that i like to cook my food in yeah i am terrified of bugs like absolutely mortified Huh. Like, I'm, I'm the kind of girl who, like, screams when she sees a bug. Oh my God! I'm like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a little bitch. Uh, well, that's disgusting. And I hope one day your house finds Jesus. I know. It's like, who the fuck lived here before me and, like, tarnished this place? Oh, my God. Maybe you need to do a seance. Oh, I've done so many seances here. <laughs> I've done so many sage, sage cleanses. Like, it's been done. Oh my god, I haven't done a seance since I was a little kid. I want to do a seance. <laughs> I want to summon the dead. <laughs> so yeah. Fun. That's my life this week. Very, very exciting. Yeah. Terrifying. Yeah. Ugh. My big exciting update for this week is that for only the second time since we've been recording this podcast, did I take my notes on the computer. Nice. I feel like I've really evolved. Good job. Thank you so much. I'm a little bit nervous. As you know, I'm very afraid of technology and bugs. So we'll see. But thank you. Bravo. Bravo. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Oh, and then one other thing um, that we forgot to mention that maybe we should have started off with is major, major, major apologies Mm. for all of the horrendous audio issues of our last episode. So I think for the most part, we worked out our volume-ish, but after the raw recording, before we did any editing, my volume was like a thousand percent louder than Melissa's. So we had that going on and then we just had issues. Like, I don't know what was going on. I don't remember now, but little things kept happening and we apologize if you heard a bunch of like mic movement or echoing. We just, we don't, we aren't professional audio people. We just aren't professional. We're not professional anything. We're just <laughs> not professional at all. So that's what you came here for. Fuck off. Um, so anyways, we apologize. And we're gonna, we were like looking into buying headset microphones to see if that would make a difference in some of our issues so if we do that we will be sure to post pictures to our instagram of us wearing our britney spears 2001 headsets yes (laughs) i can't wait it'll be sick okay so like this isn't really a story but this is something that i haven't discussed with you yet and i want to bring it up on the podcast okay 
Are scooters happening in Long Beach? Yes. Well, what do you mean by scooter? Like the lift scooters that you could just like rent? Yes. I have never encountered them until I came to Denver and they are everywhere. Yeah. They are all over LA and all over Long Beach. They haven't made their way to Orange County yet. Okay, so if they haven't made it to your city yet, listeners, basically Lyft and probably other companies, too, are now well, doing... Ours aren't Lyft. What are yours? Do you know? The, we have Bird is one of them. Mm-hmm. And then Lime is another one. Yeah. And then there, I think there's a third. I can't remember what it's called. Damn. Yeah, there's a few here, and I know Lyft is one of them, because when I pull up the app, it's like, do you want a scooter? I'm like, no. Oh, fucking scooter. Wait, so now I'm confused. What do you mean? Like, someone can come pick you up on a Lyft scooter? No, like, you rent a scooter. And then you have to go to wherever the scooter's yeah. at? Yeah, oh. it's like a blue bike. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Have you used these, these no. contraptions? No, so the way that they work in LA is a shitload of scooters are just sitting on the side of yeah. the road and you go grab one Yeah. and I guess swipe your card and take it as far as you want. Yep, that's And leave it here. wherever you want. Yeah. But I don't know anything about going through Lyft and ordering a scooter. Yeah, well, that I mean, like, that doesn't really matter. But they're here, they're everywhere, they're terrifying because people are just zipping down the sidewalk and you have no idea they're coming until they almost mow you down. Yep. Um, last night, I was sitting on the porch smoking my weed because you can smoke here legally, but I'd do it illegally even if I couldn't. And this woman was literally on a scooter and, like, scooting two additional scooters with her. Oh, wow. And I was like, dude, I've reached, like, peak gentrification right now. Like, right? I don't even know what's happening here. So if you're on that scoot scoot, <laughs> please just be careful of other people I just, I, that just, I'm scared enough these days to ride a bike. I just feel like that is so vulnerable on a scooter. I don't know. That scares me. Yeah. I mean, I think the idea is you're not really taking it long distance. Yeah. So I don't know. Like I, I wouldn't want to be riding one in any type of a downtown area. Yeah. Absolutely not. I've actually never ridden one before. Um, I always want to, but, like, I have no purpose to ride one because I have a car or, like, I'm walking across the street. But I always thought it would be kind of fun to do, like, a pub crawl via scooter. I mean, here's my thing is, like, it's, I get why people use it. Like, for reasons like that, it's probably better than, like, a bike. Or if you're just, like, on your lunch break and you don't want to get sweaty and gross in the summer heat, you can just, like, get on your little scoot scoot and zip to the cafe or whatever. But I don't know. I just don't like when I come out of my apartment and find a scooter on my front porch. On your porch? Yeah, you. They people leave them just right here. Wow, that's obnoxious. <laughs> Should fucking sick some fruit flies on their ass. <laughs> now I just put sound up. like fifty-year-old Barbara complaining about the scooters. You can put up how people put up like "beware of dog signs" on their window. You'd be like, "Beware of fruit flies." beware of plagues for real um all right wine review wine review wine review um i'll go okay so i am for the third week in a row on that box tip but i have a new box this week and it is called house wine and there's a picture of a house on it 
And it is a Pinot Noir. So I'm drinking red because it's actually raining outside. It has been for the last several hours. I think like Pinot Noir, like Pinot Noir in general is just like not necessarily the red that I would go for. Um, it's not terrible, but that first sip when it hit my lips, I was like, oh my God. Like, it's just very, you know, Pinot. I like Pinot. It's fine. Now that it's like, I think I needed to breathe a little bit, but I I don't know. That first hit was like very acidic and I was like, oh my Lord. It's actually kind of growing on me. So yeah, house wine, Pinot Noir, literally, I like... This is something that intimidates me about box wine is they give you like no information. Let's see. It is a product of Chile, but it is imported and bottled by original house wine in Walla Walla, Washington, which is in the Yakima Valley, which is where I lived for a year when I was in eighth grade. And it was the most miserable year of my life because it's the <laughs> fucking Yakima Valley in Washington state. And there is nothing there but cow poop and hops for grown beer. It's called Walla Walla Walla? Walla Walla, Washington. Two Wallas. Two Wallas. Two Wallas. Walla times two. I don't remember what season, but there was some season of the real world where one of the contestants was from Walla Walla. I remember that because I was living in Washington at the time, and I was like, hey, Walla (laughs) Represent Walla Walla. (laughs) Yeah. Well, great. Yeah. What are you drinking? So I stopped at the good old 7-Eleven for my wine today. You're going to be class. And they were hardcore promoting a wine that I'd never heard of, but they had it in every single wine you could imagine. All the reds, all the rosés, all the whites. And so I was like, all right, 7-Eleven, I'll fucking try out your $4.99 bottle of wine. So it's called Yosemite Road. And it's really cute. It has like a little bear on it. Oh. Um, and it says it's a Pinot Grigio Columbard, which I don't know what Colum- Columbard is. But there's 51% Pinot Grigio okay. and 49% Columbard. Huh? Huh. Should we? I kind of want to Google it. Yeah, Google it. Tell me what it is. But it says, and then underneath it, it just says American. So I assume that means it was made in America. Oh, it was made in Livermore, California. Good old Bay Area. Okay. okay. And it has yeah. 12.5% alcohol. Um, and it's fucking good. I like Is really it? like it. <laughs> yeah. It's a million times better than that 14 bottle girl in the dragon that I bought last week at the bougie liquor store. Oh yeah, that nasty wine. Okay, Columbard is a French wine grape variety that is the offspring of Chenin Blanc and Gua Blanc? I don't even know how you say that. G-O-U-A-I-S Blanc? I've never heard of that. Me either. So it's the it's the child of some other wine I haven't heard of and Chenin Blanc. But I love Chenin Blanc, so. Cool. Nice. It says that it has zesty lemon notes, refreshing light body, and a crisp finish, which is all accurate. The only other description I'd give, it has a tiny sweetness to it that's not horrible. Because I really don't like sweet wine. Mm-hmm. But this has just, like, just the right amount of sweet. Okay. And then bougie-ass me paired it with some gourmet macaroons from 7-eleven and they were bomb as fuck 
Nice. I saw them in the cold section at 7-Eleven, and I couldn't walk away. I was, like, buying them, and they were literally the same price as my wine, so. And they're all good. It's all good. Yeah, I already took them all down. There was four of them. (laughs) Ate them in one minute. Two chocolate, two pistachio. (sighs) So, you know what? 7-Eleven? Props to you, dude. You just made me a very happy girl tonight. Good cheap wine and some bomb macaroons. I also feel like 7-Eleven is totally our caliber of sponsorship. Like, we would be perfect spokespeople for 7-Eleven. I agree. We're like, you need $5 wine? You high as fuck and need some snacks? Come to 7-Eleven. <laughs> <laughs> we got you covered. Okay. All right. 7-Eleven wine. Yeah, I'm, I'm really I'm glad, happy with it. Yeah, I'm glad you have a good wine this week, because last I know. week sounded terrible. And so, I don't know what's going on with Yosemite Road and the 7-Eleven partnership, but at least at the 7-Eleven off Anaheim um, in Long Beach, there are millions of Yosemite Road wines. So, feel free to hop down over there and get yourself some of this bomb bomb. Because it's good. Specifically on Anaheim. <laughs> <laughs> we gonna eat macaroons Anaheim it. and Exemino that's the nice. one right next to Tommy's burger so you can also grab a chili burger or dog on the way out <laughs> this is like just one giant commercial now <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love it alright so you're up first okay let me pour one out I think I'm gonna be killing this bottle tonight I'm kind of jealous. I'm gonna try that wine now. <laughs> well, I'm. Does Denver have Seven Eleven? You know what? I haven't actually seen a single one, but they are everywhere. They got yeah. there. Okay, so as usual, very excited about my woman tonight, and I feel like this woman is going to spark a lot of conversation between us because Great. she, her life story, is very interesting, complex. It's just a whole lot. And I'm interested to see what you think and what your perspective is on her and her life's journey. Great. All right. So today I am covering a very famous, very well-known, very historical icon that goes by the name Betty Page. Ooh. So for anybody that doesn't know who Betty Page is, she is a pinup model who emerged during the sexual revolution and whose seductive photographs and magazines outraged Americans in the 1950s. She's also considered the top supermodel in history. Interesting. Okay. Yes. She's also every gothic boy's and some gothic girl's wet dream. Lots of people's wet dream, actually. (laughs) Uh, do you know much about her life? I know nothing about her but her look. That's all I know. Okay. So I'm excited. So me too. Okay. I don't, I didn't know anything about her other than that she was a pinup model. And I, of course, know what her face looks like. But I didn't know anything about her life story. And I was very surprised and intrigued by her life. So let me begin. Hmm. Betty May Page was born in Nashville, Tennessee in 1923. She was the second of six children, three boys and three girls, and she was born into an extremely poor family with a deadbeat father named Walter and a mother named Edna. 
When Betty was 10 years old, her parents divorced. Her mother worked two jobs. She was a hairdresser during the day, and she washed laundry at night. And her father was convicted for car theft after stealing a police car and going on a cross-country road trip. So he was arrested and spent two years in an Atlanta, Georgia prison. Sounds like my kind of guy. No, you don't like this guy. Oh, fucking hate this guy. (laughs) Just kidding. I take it back. So, because of this, her mother basically never being around because she was working so much and her father being in jail, Betty was in charge of taking care of her younger siblings until her mother decided to place Betty and her two sisters in a Protestant orphanage for a whole year while she was working multiple jobs trying to save enough money to take care of her kids again. So Betty was 10 years old when this happened, and she and only her two sisters lived in an orphanage. I don't know where the fuck the brothers were at, but Mm. they didn't get put in the orphanage. Weird. Yeah. How weird would that be at 10 years old? Well, that's the thing. Like, that was common. People used to, poor people used to do that shit. You could do that. You could, like, drop your kids off at the orphanage for a few months or, like, a year. Isn't that fun? Like, would you go see them? I have no idea. (laughs) I think you just go back. It was like a a doggy daycare, but that just lasted forever. Yeah, that's nuts. So. (laughs) If those existed when we were kids, like, I'd have been dropped. (laughs) Bye-bye. (laughs) so um after betty's father got out of jail he ended up renting a basement from his ex-wife edna because she was just like dying for cash because obviously she was like the sole breadwinner at this point he was just a sack of shit she had a bunch of kids she was trying to take care of she needed money and he got out of jail and was like yo can i rent out your basement i'll pay you rent and she was like well you are the kid's father and i do need the money so sure why not so he moved in he was living out of the basement and about that time is when betty claims that he began sexually molesting her and mm. her sisters mm. and she was 13 years old at that time okay i hate this guy yeah so that's not good no um but regardless of that really rocky upbringing betty was a really good student in school she was on the debate team and she was m- voted girl most likely to succeed she graduated high school second in her class and she received a scholarship to go to the peabody college in nashville okay all right all right betty so like shortly before she graduated from high school she met some fucking sports dude at like the other like local high school his name was billy neal and they got married in 1943 before he was shipped out into the army for world war ii then betty went on to go to college and she graduated from peabody college with a bachelor of arts during a time when less than four percent of women were college graduates wow less than four wait so like what year ish was this or what decade uh probably around 1945 wow for sure yeah cool she not only got a scholarship 
into the college but then she went and she graduated with her degree so she had originally planned on becoming a teacher but like right around this time she was kind of thinking about becoming an actress and she felt like that was really the path that she really wanted to take in life so also around this time her and neil got a divorce and that happened in 1947. So I don't know what happened with that, but he went off to war. She was graduating college, wanting to be an actress. They got divorced. Mm. So later that same year, Betty moved to New York City, where she was hoping to find work as an actress. Within days of living there, she became the victim of a sexual assault by a group of men that were in the city. So she fled back to Nashville for a while to escape the trauma but then ultimately moved back to New York a few weeks later. Wow. Fuck. So, back in New York and still pursuing her acting career, Betty landed a screen test at 20th Century Fox. She did not pass the screen test, but one of the producers offered her a break in return for sexual favors. Of course. She refused, and she stated, quote, I guess people will say I made a mistake, but sex is part of love, and you shouldn't go around doing it unless you are in love. I certainly didn't. So, she continued on her search to be an actress, and pretty much all of her other acting gigs went equally as bad as that one, and everyone deemed her too hippie. And by, like, too hippie to be a high-fashion model. And by hippie, I mean as in her hips were too voluptuous. Oh. Not, like, hippy-dippy peace signs. Like, she was too curvy. So they weren't liking her, and they were like, nah, this isn't going to work out. We don't like your look. So then, in the 1950s, while walking along the Coney Island shore... Betty met NYPD officer Jerry Tibbs, who was an avid photographer on his downtime. He gave Betty his card and suggested that she'd make a good pinup model. In exchange for allowing him to photograph her, he'd help make up her first pin pinup portfolio free of charge. She agreed. And it was Officer Tibbs who suggested to Betty that she style her hair with bangs in the front. And that's where her signature look came from. Mm -hmm. So, here's the thing about Officer Tibbs. He was a black man. And during this time period, it was one million percent taboo for a black dude to be seen photographing a white woman in a bikini, let alone nude, in public but they did that in public yeah like they would be outdoors and stuff like in parks and like at the beach and things like that and he'd be photographing her and she'd be doing her shit wow so like given the state of the year and like how society was totally unheard of which like really means like the two of them were insane but also had a fuck ton of balls yeah because it was completely socially unacceptable and he basically was like hey i have an eye for photography i see you you look great let's do this and she was like here's my big break she went for it they shouldn't have even have been you know having this go down to begin with and it ended up being the beginning of her success 
so he's coined officer tibbs is coined as like really the genius behind creating betty page Mm -hmm. and it came from such like an extremist place during that time period so in the late 1940s in general america came out with what they called camera clubs and these were basically clubs that were formed to get around law restrictings or i'm sorry these were clubs that helped people get around laws that restricted the production of nude photos so these camera clubs existed to promote artistic photography but in reality they were fronts for making pornography and betty was a camera club model and she specialized in the field of glamour photography her lack of inhibition in posing made her a huge hit and her name and image became quickly known in the erotic photography industry so betty was never really considered the most beautiful or striking of models but her photos represented this like perfect like shift between sweetness and sexuality and that's kind of like what tied people in and made her so appealing so from the late 1950s um to like almost the beginning of the 60s she posed for a photographer named Irving Claw, and he did mail order photographs with pinups and BDSM themes, making her the first famous bondage model in history. Mm. So Irving Claw also used her in dozens of his black and white short specialty films, which catered to specific requests from his clientele. These silent films featured women in lingerie and high heels, and they acted out fetish scenarios of abduction, domination, slave training, bondage, and spanking. They had elaborate leather costumes and restraints, and Betty alternated between playing the stern dominatrix and the helpless victim bound hand and foot. Oh, wow. I had no idea she did any of that. I didn't either. So, when she was interviewed about this, like, later in her life when she was no longer doing it, this is what she said, quote, They keep referring to me in the magazines and newspapers and everywhere else as the queen of bondage. The only, the only bondage posing I ever did was for Irving Claw. Usually, every other Saturday, he had a session for four or five hours with a couple models and a couple of extra photographers, and in order to get paid, you had to do one hour of bondage. That was the only reason I did it. I never had any inkling along that line. I don't really disapprove of it. I think you can do your own thing as long as you're not hurting anybody else. That's been my philosophy ever since I was a little girl. I never looked down my nose at it. In fact, we used to laugh at some of the requests that came through the mail, even from judges and lawyers and doctors and people in high positions. Even back in the 50s, they went in for the whips and the ties and everything else. Yeah. So, in 1953, Betty took acting classes, which led to several roles on stage in Broadway, burlesque, and television. And in 1954, she met Bunny Yeager, who was a former model and aspiring photographer, who signed Betty for a photo session at the Wildlife Park Africa, USA, in Boca Raton, Florida. 
the photographs from the shoot were called jungle betty and they're among her most famous to date which include nude shots with a pair of cheetahs betty also made herself the leopard skin patterned jungle outfit she wore along with much of her own handmade lingerie nice after uh the photographer bunny uh sent shots of betty to playboy founder hugh hefner which by the way that motherfucker has come up in way too many of the women we've covered who has he come up for besides gloria somebody else we talked about him it with there was one other person that we talked about him with i don't know about that i know tia carrera was in playboy hmm i don't know but fuck that guy so so she shared this bunny lady shared photos of betty to hugh hefner and he ended up selecting one of them to use as his playmate of the month centerfold centerfold in the january 1955 issue of the two-year-old magazine the photo shows betty wearing only a santa hat kneeling before a christmas tree holding an ornament and playfully winking at the camera Betty won the title Miss Pinup Girl of the World. She also became known as the Queen of Curl. Sorry. She also became known as the Queen of Curves and the Dark Angel. But Betty's photos and her films raised alarms during this very conservative era, and they were publicly denounced by civic and religious leaders as perversion, which prompted American senators to investigate claims that they were pornographic. Her old photographer, Irving Claw, was later arrested for conspiracy to distribute obscene material through the United States mail, and mm-hmm. Betty was subpoenaed to appear before a Senate committee investigating obscenity. Oh, but in the end, she never had to testify. You know After, why? Because those judges be watching her videos. <laughs> right? <laughs> They're like, how can I put her in jail or make her testify when I've been jerking off to those videos for 10 years? And I'm going to need some more, so she's cool. <laughs> so after this happened, Betty pretty much figured that her days as a pinup model were over so she literally vanished from the pub- public eye to avoid being hounded by federal agents she vanished off the face of the motherfucking earth like went into hiding and people didn't know where she was for like years just because she was trying to evade authorities or she just wanted to be in privacy uh i think it was a lot of things i think the whole like um police investigation so pretty much some of the things that i read was that when that investigation was going down they were treating it like a witch hunt Mm. and they were coming at motherfuckers like you know they were gonna like have them crucified and hung at the stake for sure so i think she was scared like totally freaked out like holy fuck like what happened what i get myself into and then once she like didn't end up having to testify and kind of like got off the hook i think she was like like that's enough i kind of got scared out of doing what i do and like now what do i do because that's literally all i do yeah so she was kind of like freaked out feeling guilt tripped about you know all the work she'd done being told she was a pervert it was illegal you know all these religious people and like senators are trying to put her in jail like it's a whole thing so she's just kind of like in shock and freaked out and like i need to get the fuck out of here so she pretty much just like goes into hiding 
And in 1959, as she was lying on a seawall in Key West, Florida, she noticed a church with a white neon cross on top of it. She walked inside and became a born-again Christian. Shut up. Stating, quote, When I gave my life to the Lord, I began to think he disapproved of all those nude pictures of me. I knew nothing about this. Yeah. What the fuck? Okay. All right. So, Betty went on to attend three different Bible colleges. (laughs) And she wanted to serve as a Christian missionary in Africa, but was turned down because she had had a divorce. Wow. It's like, how many people are signing up to go be Christian missionaries in Africa that you're going to turn somebody down because they got a divorce? Like, that is doing harm to our world. Yeah. Like, someone's trying to fucking help people, and you aren't letting them because of that. Yeah. Like, you were the problem. That's fucking nuts to me. Yeah. No, I agree. Holy yeah. shit. Yeah. Oh, my God. And over, is- like, such a small thing, too. It's not like she committed crimes or, like, you know what I mean? It's She got divorced when she was, Well, it was, wasn't like even, like, the fact that she was, like, doing what they call pornographic right. photos in yeah. films. They are like, no, you got a divorce one time. Same <laughs> <laughs> That's the other thing, too. I'm like, so I'm cool enough for your church, but, like, I can't be a missionary. Yeah. I can't go to Africa and help people out there that, like, need help. Bullshit. So, over the next few years, instead, she worked for various Christian organizations before settling in Nashville again in 1963 and ended up re-enrolling at Peabody College to pursue a master's degree in education, which she had originally planned on being a teacher, but then she eventually dropped out. Um, at that same time, her and her original husband, Billy Neal, remarried oh very, God. very briefly. No. In the nineteen, in the late nineteen sixty-three time period, but then they very quickly annulled that marriage right after that. Okay. Um. So then she returned to Florida in nineteen sixty-seven, and she married again to a man named Harry Lear. But that marriage ended in divorce in 1972. So then she moved to Southern California in October 1978, where she suffered a nervous breakdown and had an altercation with her landlady. The doctors who examined her diagnosed her with acute schizophrenia, and she spent 20 months in Patton State Hospital in San San Bernardino, California. After a fight with another landlord, she was arrested for assault, but was found not guilty by reason of insanity, and she was placed under state supervision for eight years. Wait, so do we think she actually was schizophrenic, or were they just doing that, like, hysterical woman thing? I have no idea. What the hell? Wow. I mean, it would make way more sense that they were doing that hysterical woman thing. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking. But this was also not the 50s anymore. This was, like, in the late 70s that this was happening. And I don't know that they were really locking people up in, like, the early 80s for freaking out, were they? I I don't know. I just, like, not that I'm a psychologist, but, like, I always think of schizophrenia as being something that comes out when you're young. Well, yeah. I think typically it, like, starts to peak around when you're, like, 20. 19 or 20 years old. Right. Right. So that's why I'm like, 
Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I don't really know. But she was in a mental institution for, for two years. years. Oh, for two years. Okay. That's wow. a long fucking time. Yeah. Well, 20 months. Yeah. But that's a long fucking yeah. time. Yeah. And then she was placed on, what, like, police supervision for eight years after that? That's insane. Insane. So, like, all of this was going down, basically, when she vanished. Like, okay. she vanished, and then all this shit, the Christian missionaries, the born-agains, the psychotic episodes, the couple of marriages and divorces. <sighs> All this was happening and no one knew where she was, what she was doing, what was going on. Yeah. So her mysterious disappearance from the public eye only fueled the public's fascination. Um, In fact, it was two decades that no one was sure where she was or even if she was still alive. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But then she resurfaced in the 1990s after being tracked down for a documentary. So, revival of public interest occurred through various platforms, which included artists painting replicas of Betty Page images, books were reprinting pictures from the private camera club sessions, a cult following was built around Betty during the 1980s, which focused on her pinup and lingerie modeling, and numerous articles about the missing pop cultural figure appeared in mainstream media. In 1993, with a telephone interview with Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, Betty told the host she was unaware of the resurgence of her popularity, stating that she was, quote, penniless and infamous. Mm. And in the late 1990s interview, like a different one, Betty stated that she would not allow any current pictures of her to be shown because of concerns about her weight. But in 1997, she changed her mind and agreed to a television interview on the condition that the location of the interview and her face were not to be revealed. Whoa. So they were interviewing her on television and had to blur out her face. Wow. Um, In her last years of life, Betty hired a law firm to help her recoup some of the profits being made around her image and fame. So, like, when she'd gone missing and then everyone was like, where the fuck she'd go? And people started to produce all this stuff that were about her or of her, like, paintings, books, you know, all this shit, clothing, house stuff. Like, it just, like, all of a sudden she just started, was used as an image to, like, other people profit off of her right and then someone's like yo people are still like fucking giving a shit about you like where you been and then she's like oh wow i'm broke and have been in a psych ward and i'm completely you know have nothing so i guess maybe i should do something about this yeah yeah. (laughs) so she hired a law firm to try and like collect some profits for things that people were making you know in her image and um according to like mtv in terms of you know what people how people had been influenced by her and kind of like marketing themselves based off her influence this is what they quoted they said carrie katie perry's rocker bangs and throwback skimpy jumpers madonna's sex book and fascination with bondage gear rihanna's obsession with all things leather and lace and second skin binding uma thurman and pulp picture Pulp Fiction, the Suicide Girls website, the Pussycat Dolls, the entire career of Marilyn Manson's ex-wife Dita Von Teese. Mm-hmm. None of that would have been possible without Betty Page. 
Also, like, Dita Von T stands on her own. You don't need to, like, qualify her as Marilyn Manson's ex. That's what they wrote. That's what MTV wrote. Fuck you, MTV. That's, like, a direct quote from MTV. <laughs> Fuck that. <laughs> God damn it. I'm taking a stand. Yeah, for sure. Get your money. Fuck. So, this, this lawyer was working on, like, figuring out what he could do about all this shit that had been going down in the two decades that she went MIA. But... Right around this time, Betty was a little bit old, and she was struggling with, um, like, three weeks of battling pneumonia, and she ultimately suffered a heart attack on December 6th, 2008, and was hospitalized in critical condition, and her family eventually agreed to discontinue life support, and she died on December 11th, 2008. I believe she was 86 years old. Oh, wow. So... Um, just to, like, summarize a couple things about her, um, her life was filled with, like, cult myth, mystery, sadness. She went through a ton of trauma in her life and was able to pretty much, for the most part, battle through all of it during a time period when 4% of women were graduating with college degrees. She was one of them. And also supported herself independently with her own career making enough fame and money to be one of the most successful models of known history um and she kind of you know went down the rabbit hole a little bit later in life but came back out and continued to fight whatever battles she was fighting so she's like i don't even know really like what to think about her because she's so complex but her one of her old i can't remember what his name was but like one of her managers during her modeling career he basically said that her free-spirited image and sensuality captured the imagination of a generation during an era of strong sexual repression she was a pinup icon tacked up on walls in military barracks and garages and five decades later some feminists still hail her as a pioneer of women's liberation it has been estimated that over 20,000 photographs of betty were taken and new generations of fans still buy copies by the thousands and to end on of course one quote that i love by her this is what she said about her career quote I was not trying to be shocking or to be a pioneer. I wasn't trying to change society or to be ahead of my time. I didn't think of myself as liberated, and I don't believe that I did anything important. I was just myself. I didn't know any other way to be or any other way to live. I never thought it was shameful. It felt normal. It's just that it was better than pounding a typewriter eight hours a day, which gets monotonous true that so okay i've wait i have questions before (laughs) so like i'm really intrigued by her like super sexual image but it doesn't sound like her romantic life was popping was she like did she have anyone else besides that one guy that she she had three divorces okay so she's married like multiple times yeah divorced all of them okay for sure did she have kids no kids that i know of okay 
Yeah, and didn't okay. come up in any of my research that she had kids. Okay, so she was, like, out there getting booze. Okay. For some yeah. reason, I thought that one guy was, like, the only guy she ever married, and then she married him twice, and I was like... No, and then she married two guys after him. Okay, for sure. Yeah. And it's weird, because even though her image, it sounds like she became popular with photographers, because she was so down for anything, but it doesn't sound like her personal life was... Like, I don't know. It just doesn't seem to, like, match the image, at least the way I heard that story. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. So, her sign. You don't know it? No, I know it. I just, like, I, like... I would not guess this, but I also can't really make sense of it knowing what it is, so I'm hoping maybe you can come up with some ideas as to how this ties in together. Is she an earth sign? She is an earth sign. Okay. I was definitely getting earth sign vibes. Uh, I'm just going to say the two, and then obviously if they're wrong, we don't. My first guess would be Taurus. She's a Taurus. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense to me. How does that make sense to you? The fir- first of all, it makes sense because that line when she was like, sex should be about love. That was my first like Taurus signal. Um, because I just feel they're so, I mean, like I know Tauruses are really sexual, but I feel like they're also super monogamous. Yeah. And they, and they like really like their home and their spouse. You know what I mean? Um, also just the fact that like she had one career and that was it you know what i mean like she didn't like hop around i mean like yeah she had her weird like crazy christian times but i feel like just like the fact that she only really ever did one particular thing for a living is very ursine and maybe very Taurus. i don't know it makes sense to me that she's a tourist the only other thing that like not like not key to Taurus, but what screamed earth sign to me was just how like practical she was about yeah. her career yeah she's like i wasn't doing anything yeah. i didn't change anything i wasn't doing anything crazy i was yeah. just fucking taking pictures like what do you mean yeah like she just look she just like her perspective on it was so matter of fact like i stood in front of a camera and took pictures like why are you guys telling me i'm a pioneer yeah <laughs> like What's the big deal? Well, you know who else was a Taurus that for some reason reminds me of her was Janet Jackson. Like, oh, yeah? also this hyper-sexualized person in the media. Yeah. I don't know. The only thing that, like, makes me sad about Betty Page's story, which I don't know if me saying this is controversial or problematic, but it kind of, like, is sad to me that, like sex was such a huge thing in her life yeah and not always positive positively yeah it's like some of those like sexual assaults that she had to deal with in her life and then living this long career where really she was just a sex symbol yeah it's just kind of like and like not in i mean i think that's interesting that some people do still kind of uphold her as this symbol of like sexual liberation but there was based on this story you're telling it wasn't empowering she didn't get money out of it she you know what i mean like 
I, I don't know if it was exploitative, but yeah, it kind of was. And it was like more exploitative after she retired. Like people were making were making their money off of her image after she had already stopped producing that stuff. So I feel like that like that was even more exploitative than yeah. the actual. You know what I mean? Like so yeah, but yeah, super complicated. And like I was trying to read up on like you know why is Betty Page a feminist icon and like yeah. some of the reasonings behind it were of course what I've already mentioned before like you know growing up with so much trauma and still being able to be like the top of her class focused yeah. on school like doing well getting scholarships graduating with a college degree just like that type of ability to overcome those that level yeah. of trauma at such young childhood age is remarkable. But then in addition to that, you know, she in the beginning of her career was rejected by lots of things because she wasn't pretty enough and she didn't have the right body type. And like she continued to, you know, seek the opportunities and luckily something hit and she found her niche and that was in pinup. But that like she always represented this like body positive yeah. image. And that even though she didn't fit the cookie-cutter look that most of society wanted, she did appeal to, like, a huge population of people that were into that style of look. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't know. Well, and even, I mean, even though it sounds like she was at least financially exploited by that work, like, she chose it. It wasn't like anybody forced her into it. You know, like, that was something she was doing of her own free will, which, like in general is very um like risky and risque for women but especially back then yeah so in that sense like yeah i think she's totally an icon in that way yeah um i'm just like bummed out that she didn't benefit from it more yeah that's kind of crappy i know and then just like the turmoil after her career ended that she experienced yeah this weird like christian thing that happened Oh, that was the other thing I was going to say that made me think Taurus was that she, like, cloistered, which, and I didn't think, I mean, I guess that could also be cancer, but she definitely didn't strike me as a cancer. So I feel like that's also very Taurus is to shut yourself up somewhere. I just yeah. lied. Yeah. Um, wow. Super. I'm, like, also very curious to know, like, so is there no image of her past, like, her pinup days? Basically? I didn't actually look. I would. I think she did everything she could to avoid that from happening. Yeah, I find that super. Which that's kind of like sad too, you know. Yeah. It's like that sucks. That sucks for her to be like an older woman and say, you know, don't take pictures of me. I'm ugly and I don't like my body anymore. Yeah. Um. But no, there's a picture of her older. She still has the same bangs. Does she really? She does, and Aww. also her mug shots, of course, pop up immediately. Oh shit. Okay. I know while you were talking about her, I really wanted to Google her just to look at pictures, but I knew her birthday would come up. So I was like, yeah. I can't look at it. So yeah, she's a Taurus and she was born on April 22nd. Okay. 1923. Oh, so she's barely a Taurus. She's like right on the edge of Aries. Yeah. Mm hmm interesting wow so what made you choose her uh i don't know i just always had her on my list as somebody i wanted to cover i'm so glad you covered her i know she's one of those people who i know and i know nothing about her very cool super cool
Okay, so I switched to white and we're ready to go. So this is kind of reminding me of the Wasted Away Again in Margaritaville episode where you covered this woman who was kind of risque and I'm basically covering an angel <laughs> who is also not well known. I love these kind of like mundane bitches, but I feel like I'm more appreciative of their stories because people don't know them, but they're like just famous enough that some people know them. And this is a local heroine. Of and where? I found of Denver. Denver? Okay. Yeah. So I found out about her because basically I was being a nerd and there were these free walking neighborhood tours and there was one that was happening in the neighborhood I'm staying in and it was literally like two blocks from the house I'm staying in. And one of the roommates told me about it. I was like, fuck yeah, I'm going to go to that. So I went to that and actually really like kind of a tangent, but it really was more about the Chicano history in Colorado and the like First Nation, First Tribes history. But as part of that conversation, the name of this woman who was this like prolific educator and activist in the 19th to 20th centuries came up and she has like, I don't want to give too much away, but she had like a very giving, generous life and like a crazy end to her life. So I figured that I should cover her. And her name was Emily Griffith. She is a local hero, both, both in terms of Denver and in the state of Colorado. And as I said before, she was a 19th and 20th century Denver-based educator who dedicated her life to making school accessible to everyone, regardless of their economic, ethnic, or immigration status. And I thought this was super funny because last episode I had a couple of comments about how you should drop out of school and not go. So basically it went from like fuck school to like, oh, this girl's like school, school all the way. So fuck it. Let's balance this out. Which, hey, so was Betty Page. Hey. Yeah, she was. She went to three Bible colleges. Bro. And she tried to get a master's. So we went from like never go (laughs) drop out of school to drop into school. That's how that's how quickly we turned on that dime. Okay. So she was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. Her father was a lawyer and her mother was a stay-at-home mom, but they were very poor because even though her father was a lawyer, he would only take on clients that he believed were innocent, which was very like morally upstanding of him, but didn't make him very much money as a lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. So eventually her father decided to quit his job to become a Presbyterian missionary, which made them even poorer. So, well-intended man, but just economically wasn't really working with his spirit. So Emily had to leave school after the eighth grade to help take care of her family. Her parents and her sister Ethel were very sickly, and her sister Florence had a mental illness. So she basically had to take care of the house. She had to be the lady of the house from the time she was about 13. Hold up. Ethel and Florence. (laughs) I don't see the problem. Okay, so occasionally, so I think I've said my full name on the podcast before, but my first name is Colleen. And occasionally when I go to Starbucks or something, they'll write Pauline on my cup. I'm like, nobody has been named Pauline since like 1802. (laughs) Nobody fucking has that name. Why would you think my name was Pauline? Oh, I want to name my next pet Ethel. Ethel? That just sounds like a great pet name. That could be a cute pet name. I feel like that would be a cute name for like a terrier dog or something. (laughs) Ethel. 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 Anyway, 
So, Emily's basically the woman of the house. Her uncle, during this time, ran a night school for adults, which would eventually inspire Emily to become the educator that she is known for today. And the motto of her uncle's school was, for all those who wish to learn. Spoiler alert, this phrase will come up again later in Emily's life. Okay. So when Emily is 16 years old, the economy crashes. Many people had to leave the absolutely beautiful, immaculate city of Cincinnati, Ohio to find work. And the Griffiths moved to Nebraska. So the economy crashes and they're like, cool, we're going to move to the middle of the country and become farmers. But unfortunately, they were not successful because her parents were too weak to work on a farm. They were too weak? Yes. Like they were just too, because like farm work is like 18 hour backbreaking days. So there's this like theme going on with her family where they seem like really good hearted, well-intended people, but they just keep making these like financial decisions that are not feasible for them like becoming an attorney but only working for innocent people or moving to a farmland and not being able to farm so god bless them but um during that time so once they relocate to nebraska emily's sister florence is diagnosed with epilepsy and so she needs to go see like all these expensive doctors and basically it falls onto 16 year old emily and her 18 year old brother charles to support their family Charles gets a job at the post office and Emily decides to pursue her dream of becoming a teacher. So the local school board in Nebraska, I don't know where in Nebraska she lived. I don't know how many towns there are, but the local school board in Nebraska. (laughs) Sorry, that was the dog toy falling. Hang on a second. Give me that. Give me that. (laughs) Give me that. Thank you. I'm sorry. Okay. So the local school board in her Nebraska town did not want to hire Emily because she was only 16 and she looked even younger for her age. And they were worried that she wouldn't be able to control a schoolhouse with students of all ages. So they put up all these blocks to basically stop her from getting hired. They made her pass all of these difficult tests, which of course she did because she ain't no fucking chump. So they eventually hire her and she's put in charge of a group of students between the ages of 6 and 26 um to save i don't understand this to save money she spent her time living with the families of her students totally didn't understand that because i assumed she was living at home i don't know but that's what i read online so she would live with one family for a few weeks and then move on to another family and during this process she realized that most of the parents of her students could not read or write or do basic math because they had all quit school at super early ages to go work on their family farms um which she obviously related to because that's what she had to do basically to support her family and so on top of teaching student children during the day she tutored the parents of her students when she stayed with them at night and keep in mind this girl only has an eighth grade education so she literally has to like in order for and she's teaching like 26 year olds so in order for her to be like keeping up with her college level students she's got to be like learning on the fly and teaching herself as she's teaching like children and teaching parents and teaching everybody else that's insane she loves school she loves it um so in 1894 a vicious winter destroyed the few crops that the griffiths had in nebraska and they knew they had to leave or they would starve to death So Emily convinced her family to move to Denver because she thought there would be more opportunities to make a living than on the plains. And I'm not taking back this statement. Nebraska fucking sucks. And I'm not backing down. (laughs) 
And if you live in Nebraska and you listen to this podcast, one, I'm sorry, and two, hit us up. And let <laughs> us know how it is. Because I have driven through Nebraska and it is just like endless grass. Isn't Omaha supposed to be cool, though? I don't know. Warren Buffett lives there. He's like one of the richest people in the world and he still lives in Omaha. Does he really? Yeah. He still lives in like his three bedroom house in Omaha that he bought in like the 70s. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I guess it's cracking. <laughs> Or maybe that's how you become a billionaire. He pays like $200 a month in mortgage. He's like, that's it. That's all I pay. Okay. So Emily's family heads for Denver. She, this is like kind of boring, but I love her. And trust me, it gets like crazy at the end. So she applies for a job to be a teacher in the Denver public schools. This was interesting to me. On her application, she lies about her age and says that she's 15 years old. And like, keep in mind, this is the late 1800s. So this is how old teachers are. You're, like, old enough to, like, menstruate. You're old enough to have a family. And you're old enough to be a teacher, basically. Wow. Like, you're good to go. So, on her application, she lies about her age and says she's 15 because she was actually 27. But she didn't want to be passed over for a job because she was, quote, an old maid. So, in the Victorian times, basically, if you weren't married in your late 20s, people assumed something was super wrong with you. And so she was afraid that they would just think she was a freak and she wouldn't get hired. But because she looked so young for her age, she literally, she's a 27 year old posing as a 15 year old. Wow. So this at is, 27, she could be considered an old maid? Yeah. Yeah. Fuck, not being dude, married. we are old, old, old maids. Girl, I'm the oldest of the maids. You have a boyfriend. <laughs> You're halfway there. Um... Yeah, so she, like, she, and I read online that she had been proposed to multiple times, but she didn't want to get married because she didn't want to distract from her family or her work. So, yeah, so even though by the time she gets to Denver, she has 11 years of experience teaching, she can't say that because she's lying about her age, and if she'd been teaching for 11 years, then she'd be four, so she basically has to start from the bottom because she claims she's 15 and like work her way up again. She basically has to like keep this secret that she's a super experienced teacher, uh, which she does. She does work her way up. She starts as a substitute teacher in elementary schools before earning a promotion to eighth grade teacher, which God, like what a terrible grade to teach. Ooh. If you were an eighth grade teacher, my heart and soul go out to you. That was like the worst age ever. But she taught at the 24th Street School in Denver's Five Points neighborhood, which is kind of where I'm at now. So Five Points is sort of like was historically, it's different now, but historically it was the ethnic neighborhood. So that's where most of the Hispanic population lived, Jewish, Asian, African-American, and then also any immigrants who were coming into Denver, almost all of them emptied out into Five Points. So during this time, early 1900s, there were lots of racist policies keeping these particular people from being able to earn good jobs or get a good education. Emily saw that many of her students lived in extreme poverty, and she believed that the best way out of poverty was to become educated. So she dedicated her spare time to giving free lessons to her students' parents and siblings. She really is, like, big on the adult education. She helped immigrants learn English. And in 1904, she became the deputy state superintendent of schools. So she went from having, like, an eighth grade education to becoming, like, the head of schools in the state of Colorado. What the fuck? Which I think is fucking bad. In 1904, as a female. I don't know. I just think that's super badass. But she was only in that position for five years. And then in 1909, she decided that she missed teaching in return of the classroom. 
she's literally an angel. She had this like cush ass bureaucratic job at the Capitol, and she's like, now nah, I'm gonna go teach people. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Get the fuck out of my face! I just took screenshots of that dog right behind you. Get away! Did I it like, lick you? I'm hiding her bone because she keeps like dropping it on the floor. Go. Uh, get a job. Okay. So, I'm not even going to cut any of that. So, <laughs> in 1909, she becomes a teacher again. But then the next year, so in 1910, she's offered a position as Deputy State Superintendent of Instruction. So basically what that meant was that she could determine, like, what the curriculum was for the entire state of Colorado. And she's what like, fuck, yeah, I'm going to take that fucking job. So she takes that job. But she's only in that job for four years because in 1913, she decided to return to her school and become a teacher again because her school was failing under the new leadership. So she was like, again, had this super cush job where she basically controlled all of education in Colorado. And she was like, no, I'm going to go where I'm needed and go help my people back in Denver. Wow. Yeah. So she goes back to Denver. Well, like she's in Denver this whole time because Denver is capital. But she goes back to teaching and she's teaching classes for adults at night. Her classes are practical and include sewing, cooking, hat making. Yeah. Um, and English classes for immigrants. First of all, I'm going to take a hat making class. <laughs> I'm trying to make hats. The classes were extremely popular and she eventually decides that it was time to just make an entire school for adults instead of just like running the school for kids and teaching them on the side. So during her time working for the state, she obviously rubbed elbows with a lot of like really powerful and rich people and she made a bunch of friends and she tapped these connections to help get funding for her adult school she approached wealthy women for help wealthy women for help telling them it was a chance to do something good for the less fortunate and she convinced their businessmen husbands that a school for adults would train skilled and productive workers so she basically was like hey dude you're not only helping like poor folk you're helping yourself because i'm going to train up a bunch of employees that you can then hire for your businesses and then the guys were like oh, okay i guess that's cool so they kicked her some money uh but even at this point in her career some people question emily's ability to run a school successfully because she only had an eighth grade education she's like bitch she's she like that, she made it that fucking far yeah she was like the head of schools in the state like shut your mouth everybody haters gonna hate but she doesn't give a fuck and she keeps doing her thing and in 1916, she manages to convince the school board that she can pull this off. They give her an old, condemned, like, abandoned school building. But with the money of her supporters, she's able to make it into a school that is safe for students to enter. And it officially opens on September 9th, 1916. She took the motto of her uncle's school for all those who wish to learn as the motto for her new school. And she actually named her new school for adults, quote, the Opportunity School. <gasps> Everyone was shocked at how popular it was. <coughs> Excuse me. She estimated that the school would have 200 students in its first year and 1,400 students enrolled in the first week. So turns out when you actually give people opportunities to be educated, they take them. What a crazy, well, some of them do. Some of us, you know, do our own thing. But, um, keeping in tune with her, or keeping in line with her old tune of wanting to make things accessible, 
she makes it super easy for people to attend the school is open 13 hours a day so that students could come to class around their work schedules they had no attendance requirements so you could basically like pop in and out of classes you could attend because she knew that people were busy and everything taught at the school was super practical because the idea was to make sure that people could be employed and basically work their way out of poverty that was her whole goal the entire time so she would often like talk to union organizers around the city or talk to businessmen and be like what do you need like what should i be teaching my students and she was super strategic about it that's kind of smart there was no cost for classes at the opportunity school and she went out of way her way to make sure all of her students needs were met if a class was requested by more than 20 students she'd find someone to teach it she would send teachers to the hospital to teach her students if they were ill and after one of her students fainted from hunger during class she started showing up with a large cauldron of soup she would she could be seen carrying the soup on a streetcar every day and she usually fed around 200 students every day yeah that's a lot of soup dude yeah (laughs) that's a fuck ton of soup so (coughs) by the time emily retired in 1933 the Opportunity School had seen over 1 million graduates in 1934. So that's only in 20 years. That's and, insane. Yeah. In 1934, the school was renamed the Emily Griffith Opportunity School in her honor. Now, this unfortunately is where shit gets real. Uh-uh. And Emily's story takes a very tragic turn. There's a lot of dropping happening. This is like the drop zone podcast. So Emily retires to a town called Pinecliff in Colorado. And she basically lives in a cabin with her sister Florence, the one who had epilepsy. She didn't want her to live alone because of her illness. So um, she had a cabin built by her friend Fred Lundy, who was a retired teacher from her school. And she was having a good retirement. She and her sister would go hiking every day. They'd have friends over at night. Until 1947. One day, Emily's other sister, Ethel, the one you're going to name your dog after, she came to visit the cabin one evening, but there was no answer at the door. She assumed her sisters were on a walk in the forest. But when she didn't hear anything from either of them the next morning, she became worried. Ethel and her husband broke into the house and found that both Emily and Florence had been shot to death. There was no sign of a struggle and the sisters had prepared dinner for three people, which meant that they were expecting company, but we don't know who that company was. And so the police suspected that it was a friend of Emily's who killed them. They suspected Fred Lundy, her friend who actually built the cabin. He committed suicide after the murder so I think that's partially why, but it was never proven that he was that he was related to it in any way. Like um, he committed suicide right after the murder. I can't. I didn't find that. Yeah, so I don't know. Um, and then other people. This to me sounds more interesting. Other people thought her sister Ethel, the one who found her, and her husband arranged the murder because they inherited all of Emily's life insurance after her death. Yeah. Oh my god. So who knows? To this day, the murders of Emily and Florence Griffith are unsolved, and the world or the local community, as you might imagine, was horrified to learn of her death. People could not believe that such a peaceful life had had such a violent end. 
police search for months, but they never arrested anyone for the crime. Oh my god. So unfortunately, a very tragic end. But to end on a higher note, her legacy so um, includes, as part of Colorado's 100th anniversary celebration, they made a stained glass portrait of Emily Griffith and hung it in the state capitol in 1976. And, I, and I'm staying like five blocks from there. So I'm going to go in there and take a picture of it and put it on her Instagram. How cool. Yeah. Um, it remains there to this day. And in 1985, Emily became a member of the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame. In, 2000, in the year 2000, she was honored with a Millennium Award given to the people who have had the largest impact on Denver since its founding. To this day, the Emily Griffith School still trains adults, and it has been renamed the Emily Griffith Technical College. They also, in 1985, opened a high school in her honor, and the Emily Griffith High School was founded to give those who dropped out of high school as teenagers the chance to earn a diploma as adults. So it's a high school for, like, grown people, which is still standing to this day. And that is the very crazy story of Emily Griffith, a local Denver hero. I know. I kind of, like... I couldn't, I basically took all of this information from the Denver Public Library website because I couldn't find it anywhere else. I mean, based on that, I feel like her sister is the bigger suspect than her friend. Like, there's motive. So wait, her friend was just some guy that built the cabin or whatever? Yeah, and I think, like, again, I don't really have any info, but I think part of why they suspected him was because he committed suicide after the murder. So maybe it was pretty shortly thereafter. Like, pretty gnarly, though, that fool commits suicide after the murder. And, like, he could have also just, like, been in love with her and was completely grief-stricken or something. But she never married, and she never had kids. Wow. Yeah, but she just taught all the people. So she's definitely, there's a lot, there's like parks and a lot of things in Denver that are named after her. So you see Emily Griffith's name around the city a lot. Dude, you think her sister did it? Or like her husband, like her sister's husband. I feel like it would be more like the husband's tip to be like, hey, we could get money out of this. I don't know. I don't, I I don't know because I feel like there's not enough information for me to make a good guess, but if the only two suspects that I was given was her sister and that guy, I feel like it's more likely her sister because she had something to profit. That's fucking crazy. It's just weird to me. It was never, I mean, this was back in the day, but but that was never solved. But also you think, like, you, you would think knowing that about her sister that they would have to, like, at least investigate that as an option. Well, so that's why, like, the theory is that they hired someone. So, like, not that her sister herself, like, did it, which would probably be hard to prove. Okay. But I guess, like, to me, the thing that, like, freaks me out is that they were expecting a guest. So whoever that guest was was the person who killed them. Because if the guest showed up... creepy. Yeah, because if the guest showed up, they would have, like, realized something was wrong. So it was the two, it was Emily and her sister and then a mystery third guest? Yeah. But it was not that sister, oh, because the two sisters died. Yeah, so Emily and Florence lived together. Got it. And okay, then okay. Ethel was the one who, like, supposedly found them dead. Right? Wow. Yeah. That but they bitch ha- Ethel. <laughs> well, that's, well, and that's the thing, like, Ethel, her whole thing is she came by the night before, and I'm like, why did you come by the night before? To just check on them when they were expecting a dinner guest? Were you the dinner guest? Did you fucking murder your own sisters in cold blood? 
I don't Dude, know. Dude, crazy. I know. So she had, like, this very great, generous, philanthropic life and dedicated her life to, like, really helping literally, like, hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people. Um, but a very, unfortunately, very tragic end. Yeah. And unsolved. Wow, that was a good story. Yeah. Kind of, like, not expected, right? Yeah. I kind of like that twist at the end. I know. I know. Huh. Yeah, so that's Emily Griffith. Well, hello, Emily Griffith. Yeah. Um, I definitely have an immediate guess on her sign. Okay, go. She Aquarius? Yes! <laughs> you fucking killed it this episode. February 10th, 1868. I knew she was an Aquarius. Right? I knew she had to be an Aquarius. Because why? Because she dedicated her entire life to, like, other people. Yeah. And like this bigger humanitarian, you know, fucking mission that she was on. Yeah. Also, like, was her whole family Aquarian? Because those decisions that they made, (laughs) like, falls in that same realm. I don't know. I think her dad might have been a Pisces. That's my guess. (laughs) That's gonna be my guess. Like, bless his soul, but yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. I liked your story. So how old was she when she died? I know, I was thinking that. So she died in, wait, I'm bad at math. Late 70s, early 80s when she died. Oh, wow. They killed her that old? Yeah. Yeah. Like, like they straight why up. why even kill her at that point? She's already yeah. old as shit. Like, you can't wait, like, 10 more years? Be cool, stay in school, guys. For real, that's our new motto. Yeah, I know. Be cool, stay in school. It changed. It changed, but... <laughs> We'll see what next week brings us. <laughs> All right. Um, anything to wrap up on? I don't think so. I don't think so. Just the usual, all the things you ignore every week, um, like subscribing <laughs> and emailing and following. Telling all your friends. Yeah, and... all that kind of stuff. Nebraska <laughs> fucking sucks. Are there tornadoes in Nebraska? Hell yeah. Yeah, I, know, I feel like anywhere with tornadoes is an immediate no. No way. Bye. Are they, but there's not tornadoes in New Orleans, are there? There have been. and right? that, But that's, like, new. Um, it actually happened a couple weeks ago. There was one. Yeah, you saw it, like, took video. a house. Ha- yeah, it took, like, a house out. Yeah. That is fucking crazy. It is crazy. I know. No but, global, but global warming's not real. Okay. Cool. You know what? I just read a really sad, sad, sad article last night about global warming and how, like... I don't remember the exact number, but, like, a fuck ton of reindeer, like, real reindeer in the Norwegian plains have all starved to death. Oh, no. Because of global warming? Because of global warming and their food sources are either, like, going extinct or dying also. Mm. And I was reading about how the narwhals are... (gasps) at risk no the polar bears are at risk the reindeer the seals like all those arctic animals are like all the fucking coolest creatures they're like they're all gonna be gone soon and then us we're all gonna be gone soon i know well once the arctic melts and all that fucking water drowns i mean you're gonna be one of the first ones gone if you stay in new orleans oh 100 percent yeah I mean, fuck, that city's underwater half the year when it rains anyway. Yeah, it's not going to be there very long. No. 
It's not, well, I'm in Denver, though, so I'm a mile up, so I'm safe from that shit. You're safe for now. All I have to worry about is, like, solar flares, which might also kill us all. What's a solar flare? It's basically, like, a giant light fart from a star. So if, like, the sun decides to just, like, have a gigantic fart, it could, like, expel <laughs> way too much light and energy and basically, like, burn our planet. What? And but why because would that hit Denver? Well, it would, no, it would hit all of us. But oh. I was making a joke because, like, Denver is higher to the sun. Oh, it's closer to the sun. Okay. No, we'd all be fucked if a solar flare hit. But, he, okay, but here's the crazy, like, science shit. Because the sun, so basically it takes, like, eight minutes for light to travel from the sun to earth. So we would, like, have eight minutes to know a solar flare had it. We'd have, like, eight minutes to know we're about to die. What do you do? Just call somebody and say goodbye and then wait for your death? That's horrifying. All right, hit us up. Instagram, Mimosa Sisterhood, Mimosa Sisterhood, gmail.com. We will ignore your email. 